thank you for that, and thank you everyone for coming. Um, I thought I'd probably just sort of start off talking a little bit about um, some of the stuff I also covered in my keynote speech around that individual and the corporate and the political change and, and those three different aspects. Um, obviously, uh, change for animals is, is a really massive issue because we're talking about billions and billions of sentient animals. Um, the issue is, is an enormous one and, of course, um, it's also associated with an enormous amount of environmental degradation um, and it's also associated with human health risks as well. Um, so it's a massive space and it's something we really need to focus on but it's something that we need to make sure that we're getting as close to where we want to be um, as fast as possible. Now when I talk about individual behaviour change and we're talking about community sentiment and individuals, how they choose their behaviours, what their purchasing choices are, it's really quite difficult to work out um, how do we actually make sure our campaigning is effective? How do we make sure we actually make like get that mass behaviour change through? Um, I've done some research within some of my previous roles um, and we did like some Facebook ads and we would just look at, you know, happy images versus sad images with very specific um, target audiences, for example. Um, and, but when you actually start to look at the research that's out there, there's not a huge amount in the animal space and that's something we need so much more of so that we can make sure we can get to where we need to be as quickly as possible. Um, and then with, um, obviously, we need as much individual change as possible before we can get to that corporate change. And the corporate change and the individual change helps us get into the political change. Um, and the animal protection movement is fairly new in the political change movement, but it is so important that we are part of that political change um, because we really hit a ceiling with that individual change and the corporate change. So if you take, for an example, live animal exports, um, we're really at a moment now where the majority of Australians want to see live animal exports phased out or banned. Um, we've got corporations making ethical policies. We're seeing banks pulling out and saying that they won't invest in the live animal export industry. Um, but there's a ceiling as to how much effect we can have with that while the industry remains legal. And that's why we need to make sure that we're also involving ourselves in that political sphere as well. Awesome. So I think policy and politics, it has a really significant role to play. And it'll often depend on exactly what we're talking about here, but it will tend to be more towards the end of the intervention pipeline. So for instance, I don't think there's much use going after cage-free laws, say, if we don't have a lot of industry on, on side. And in order to have a lot of industry on side there, we need to have a kind of commitment from the public on the issue. We also need to have kind of undercover investigations in order to do those campaigns. But regardless, you know, eventually policy and politics, it just really has to become a significant part of what we do. Laws are going to be required in order to enshrine the outcomes of interest. And to get those laws through, I think we're often, like for a lot of the things that we work on, it's kind of early stage, it's kind of capacity building, we're just getting representatives in there. Uh, but I would expect it to become a much bigger area in the future. And I think it's going to be an area where we have a lot of growth over this coming decade. Maybe the, the other thing I'll say is that, you know, as a movement, we work on a variety of issues and we're in a variety of different places. And depending on where we're talking about, we're just going to land at like very different points. So for example, even comparing places like New Zealand to Australia, just very different contexts. Or if you think about the USA, again, it's a very different context. And uh, actually given all the different places that we work in, and again, all the different issues that we work on, we have started to see some preliminary achievements that do seem quite promising. So for example, recently in Denmark, there was just a load of government investment on plant-based proteins. And uh, we're also starting to see some other governments invest in alternative proteins as well. Within certain European countries, we've seen some really positive progress as well. Uh, so there's 
I believe it's Italy, Germany, France have all made quite promising steps towards banning chick maceration there. And we have had some uh, strong welfare laws in U.S. states as well, though you know, that might come under, uh, depending on what happens with the Supreme Court there, we might see some kind of backtracking. But all that stuff is, uh, I mean, it's just really, really promising. And perhaps, Simon, would you like to... Um, talk more about the local scene and some of, the, some of the things you've been involved in. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really good um, place for me to jump in and talk about some of our own wins at the Animal Justice Party. Um, so some of the work that we've done is really focused on um, the connection between animals and humans because we really need parliaments to recognise the importance of animal cruelty and animal cruelty laws and, and the problem um, that we have. So uh, as my background is um, in psychology, um, I was very well aware of the link between human and animal violence. So one of the first things I did was actually review and change the, our domestic violence laws in New South Wales. So now our domestic violence legislation actually explicitly recognises that there's a link between human and animal violence. And we've also changed the um, apprehended domestic violence orders so that people can get ADVOs for animals and they can be included on that. Um, and we also got money for refuges to build animal-friendly accommodation because we know that there's statistics as high as 70% of people delay leaving violent situations because they can't take animals with them um, because our laws don't, you know, and, and our system is set up not to support those people. We also changed strata laws around that as well because people were struggling to find rental properties. Um, we're still working on getting rental properties animal friendly, um, but the strata... The strata rules also allowed um, entire strata complexes to have animal bans. Um, so you can have townhouses where people weren't allowed to move into the whole townhouse complex and they could be retrospective as well. Um, we had an awful case of a 70-year-old man with a rescued greyhound in a, um, in a townhouse complex and during COVID, the strata decided that they couldn't have animals anymore and he was told as a 70-year-old man during a, a, like the early days of the pandemic that he had to either sell his house and find somewhere else to live or lose or lose his companion. So we made sure we changed a whole lot of laws around that. The other area that we worked on was the working with children's check system. Um, again, recognising the link, we made sure that people who had been um, charged of high-level animal cruelty offences were automatically disqualified from being able to pass a working with children's check. Um, and people on those lower-level offences um, were actually trigger offences. Now, what the system used to be is that the higher offences were trigger offences and the lower offences were nothing. Um, but, and, and this is a really good example of, you know, just having representatives for animals in Parliament and just seeing how many gaps there were and oversights that even those higher level offences, they were trigger offences, but only the police were actually telling the children's guardian um, as part of that trigger offence because only the police um, had the ability to do that. Now, most charges were being done by two private charities and, and majority of those from the RSPCA. And so anyone that was charged for those high-level offences by the private charities weren't triggering to the Children's Guardian because there wasn't a system set up to be able to even do that. Um, so we fixed that as well. Um, we also changed laws around bestiality and crush videos. Um, again, this was a massive oversight in our laws that people can get um, apply for an animal ban if they like, well the prosecutor can apply for an animal ban through the courts to stop somebody from having further animals in their care, um, except if someone was being charged with bestiality. So there wasn't even a provision under the Act that allowed a magistrate to ban someone from having further animals in their care if they had been charged for bestiality. Um, I don't think it was any, anything intentional. It was just an oversight and an oversight that had been there for many, many years. So we fixed that as well. We also banned the production, distribution and possession of bestiality and animal crush videos. Um, and I believe animal crush videos has happened quite a lot in the US as well. We've also um, put in mandatory animal bans for those higher level animal cruelty offences. We increased the um, penalties for animal abuse eightfold and doubled the jail time because animal cruelty is a very serious crime and we need to make sure our penalty system reflects how serious of a crime animal cruelty is. Um, we also recently just got $2.8 million for wombat mange from the Treasurer. Um, so wombat mange could potentially wipe out wombats. $2.8 million as we worked out kind of the budget bit that we were putting to the government, that would save the lives of about 10,000 wombats. 
We also passed a piece of legislation, and it's actually one of the first private members' bills um, that the government has supported for, someone told me 20 years, I haven't double-checked that figure, but um, essentially one pound uh, shot a mother dog and her puppies, even though there was two rescue groups that wanted to rescue and take those animals and find them loving homes. And we found during an investigation that that was entirely legal, that pounds can kill animals um, without making any effort to rehome them and actually blocking out rescue rescue groups from having access to animals on death row. Um, so we passed a piece of legislation to change that and that passed both houses. Um, just recently, I passed in the upper house the right to release bill. So that gives animals that are being used in medical experimentation the right to be released. Um, we've also run a huge number of inquiries, really putting animal protection um, on the parliamentary agenda. So we've looked at the enforcement of animal cruelty laws. Um, we've looked at the prevention of cruelty. Uh, we've looked at the entire Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act to review that. It hasn't been reviewed properly since 1979 when it was written. Um, we've done an inquiry on puppy farms and battery hens, koalas, kangaroos. Um, and, and animals in experimentation. So the list goes on and on. Um, but one thing you might have noticed when I'm talking about all of our wins is that there's really not very many wins in there for farmed animals. And that's something that people often bring up to us. They say, I love all these wins. This is fantastic. What about farmed animals? What, um, first of all, I think it's important to recognise that we've only just started to move into this political space. And because animal advocates have traditionally focused on individual change and corporate change, and we've been um, away from that political space, what's happened is that the system in itself has been structurally set up to fail animals. So um, when I talked about those oversights around bestiality, I think that's just people not really understanding the laws, not paying attention to them and their oversights. But when you actually look at the structural system of how animal cruelty is treated in this country, but not just Australia, everywhere around the world, there seems to be this similar copy of structure of how animal protection laws are put through. And I'll just very briefly explain to you what the problem is. So we have a Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act, that's the Pochter Act, um, and it's very, very weak. So it has some cruelty laws in there that you cannot do certain things to cause an animal unnecessarily suffering. Then it has exemptions to those exact acts of animal cruelty. And what that means is that if you take a dog and tie him up and cut a large piece of flesh off him um, without any pain relief, you would be looking at potential jail time and large fines. However, if you do that to a sheep in a process called mulesing, that is perfectly legal in Australia, even if it's the exact same act to a different animal. So we've got these very far-reaching exemptions. So we've got very weak animal protection laws. Then under that, you've got the enforcement of those weak animal protection laws. Now, the animal, our animal cruelty laws are the only piece of criminal legislation that requires fundraising from the public to be enforced. Now, if you think about that, imagine if the police had to hold a fundraiser, a fun run, to raise enough money to find and prosecute drink drivers. I mean, it is absolutely absurd. There is no other piece of criminal legislation that needs to be fundraised to be upheld. And it also means that those charities that are trying to uphold these, these pieces, this piece of legislation are limited in what they can do. And at our enforcement inquiry recently, we heard that they have to triage cruelty cases as they come in. Um, sometimes they won't get to some cruelty cases because they're so understaffed and so underfunded. They don't even have a 24-7 cruelty hotline, so animal cruelty can't really occur outside of office hours. So we've got this system where they're struggling because they're not being funded properly. In New South Wales, I think it's the lowest percentage of contribution. I think it's just under 2% or something of costs are covered by the government. They give, between the two charities, they get about $500,000 a year. Um, and recently, the RSPCA New South Wales estimated that they would need over $20 million um, to be able to do it um, a little bit better than what they're doing now. Um, so it's absolutely abysmal that they're having to spend so much time fundraising. Then on top of that, they are actually listed as a charity with prosecution powers under the Act. 
And that act is controlled by the agriculture minister, whose primary focus is the animal agribusiness industry, which means that that agriculture minister can remove those charities from having the ability to prosecute any of the people that are harming animals. Now, we had a massive issue in New South Wales where that very agriculture minister went to a conference and bragged about how many deer he had intentionally hit with his car on his way over. And another MP told me they'd spoken to the local mechanic who said, confirms that this car was covered in dents. Um, at the same time, how does this charity investigate this minister who also has the power to remove their prosecution powers and remove the very small amount of funding that they do get? So we've got um, these charities who are compromised in their flexibility and their ability to investigate and prosecute animal cruelty. They're so underfunded that they're not able to do it properly. Um, and where they are doing it, the laws are really weak to be able to do so. On that very... Um, High note, I might turn over to Kieran for maybe some more positive news. Yeah, so I mean, maybe before I go into some more positive news, I think this could be a good segue into just talking about the kind of the unique challenges and risks that come with trying to work on politics and policy for effective animal advocacy. And I mean, one of those, I think we're starting to see this, we haven't like totally seen it yet, is I think that partisanship could really bog down this issue. And so far, it hasn't really happened, but I think potentially what will happen in future is you'll have almost like a split down the middle. You'll get left leaning one way, right leaning another way, and it'll just mean that progress will be very hard to do. And I think so far, we've not really seen that. And there's even like certain contexts where you almost see the opposite. So for example, in the UK, there's this uh, wonderful group that is called uh, Conservatives for Animal Welfare, and they're able to do a lot of policy through that, and it's not really a partisan issue there. Um, I mean, maybe a different kind of challenge is I think within the political sphere, there's often just so many issues, and it's hard for us to kind of get significant airtime for our own issue. And maybe some of the other issues that are worked on, they can be significant opportunities, or they could be significant risks. And the one that comes to mind for me is stuff on climate change and I think in future we're going to see a lot more policy on the climate change stuff and potentially this could be quite good on the animal welfare front because you know obviously plant-based proteins less g greenhouse gas emissions less co2 emissions that could be prioritized but on the other hand what we might also see is a whole lot of policies that are going to favor like uh, white meat over red meat this could be really bad for animals because the animals that produce the white meat are just like a lot more numerous. So if we get that large scale shift from med red meat to white meat, there could be many, 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 many more animals for the farm than that could be you know, just a really bad outcome for us. I think the other thing to bear in mind is that it just tends to be a very different model for support than you know, other parts of philanthropy. So within other parts of philanthropy, it's much easier for individual donors or large foundations to offer support, tax deductibility, or, you know, there's not really contribution limits. You also, uh, it's not as if charities can really endorse candidates either, so this is like a, another complication. Um, maybe the, the other thing I'll flag is just animal ag, tends to be very powerful on the lobbying fronts. Um, so I'm more familiar with the US context, but to try and put it into perspective, within the US, there's, um, there's this resource called Open Secrets that tries to track various p political contributions. And just through those kind of, those public contributions, we know that Animal Ag, it's doing something like $30 million per year, at least in contributions to candidates. And this is how they're over and they've been doing that for a long time as well. So when, when we go up against them, that's the type of thing we're going up against. And at this point, I don't think we can really match them on that front. And maybe, you know, as a result of kind of all these contributions they've done, they basically have, you know, regulatory capture where you just get this revolving door. It's almost like lobbyists uh, for one year, they work in government, the next on these very issues. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, potentially after going through 
kind of all these challenges, all these risks, I think it could be now worth us focusing a bit more on the, the solutions and the gaps for, uh, again, for politics and policy for animals. And maybe, Emma, would you like to talk on this point? Yeah, happy to. Thank you. Um, and I also want to just um, touch on something you said about, you know, like this whole left or right issue. And, and it's so important because, um, I mean, I, I probably identify more closely with left politics generally, um, but I have found that when you're in parliament, it's not a left or right issue. And I think I mentioned it um, on Friday as well, but, you know, when I've spoken to um, the political parties about their caucuses and that it just goes all over the place, that, you know, it's not that uh, the Labor right and the Labor left are, are one way or the other. Um, they do go all over the place. And, and that will work to our advantage because I think once we box ourselves in as either left or a right issue, um, it will actually slow our progress down in as far as what we can achieve. So I think that's really important. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, I, I also kind of outlined sort of the structural problem um, when I last spoke, and, and I know it's quite depressing, but I think we need to know what the problem is so that then we can work out what that solution is to fix it. Um, so part of it is um, making sure that the agriculture minister doesn't have control of the animal protection portfolio. So an absolute priority for us, if we're going to see any significant change um, in the farm animal space, is to remove animal protection away from the agriculture minister, where there's this obvious massive conflict of interest, and actually move it either into its own portfolio um, as a minister for animal protection, or what we've seen, there are places where there's um, a minister for environment that also has the animal protection portfolio, so that could also work. Um, it doesn't have to be on its own, but it needs to be moved away. And then we also need um, either an independent office of animal protection or someone actually approached me recently and said it should be an independent commission for animal protection and we could have a commissioner um, and then they could actually advise that minister on what laws that we need to put into place to be able to protect animals properly. Um, and then they could work with uh, scientists and welfare experts. At the moment, um, you know, we see things being proposed by the government and no welfare expert is consulted whatsoever. And we've just seen that last week, the government's now proposing to relax hunting laws to allow children, um, and I'm talking like toddlers, um, hunting licences um, with, with bows and arrows and with dogs. Um, and no welfare experts at all consulted on this whatsoever. Um, they've just put out a consultation process now and they're targeting what they call the stakeholders, which is the hunting groups. Um, so we're fighting against that right now at the moment. Um, so we really need that real structural change. The other thing that we need to do is really reframe some of our um, campaigning and the things that we're asking for. One thing I constantly hear from the government and the opposition is that no government wants to ban anything. They absolutely hate the word ban. And ever since there was the greyhound racing ban in New South Wales and the backflip, they said no one's ever going to do another ban like after them. So we have to reframe what it is that we're actually asking for. Um, and, and, and sometimes that can sound um, a little bit old. I, I know that when um, we were looking at the, the ban on cetaceans, I think I'd wrote it. I wrote it down and um, one of my team members was like, I can't believe you've written it like that. I said, allow for the breeding of, you know, bottlenose dolphins for conservation purposes only. And she said, but they don't have any conservation purposes. I said, exactly, it's the same thing as a ban. Um, and, and everybody supported it and they thought that sounded wonderful. Um, it has exactly the same effect as saying, like, let's ban the breeding of these animals into, into captivity for entertainment. Um, so we have to reframe some of that and, and check what we're asking for. And I think that... Um, a lot of really strong ways forward is um, to support these alternative proteins and, uh, and supporting these um, cell-based meat companies as well because with the growth of them and supporting them going forward, again, we're not banning something, we're supporting the alternative and helping push that forward. And I think that's where we're going to see some really rapid change. And we need to make sure our laws are supporting these companies as well. I recently spoke to a cellular-based dairy company that was in Australia and they moved to the 
US because our laws um, aren't set up to support these startups, and that's really concerning. Um, these are federal laws, so there's not much I can do about it as a state MP, um, and it's one of the reasons why we need an Animal Justice Party representative federally as well. Um, so essentially, it comes down to this whole idea of novel foods, and Australia recognises cellular-based um, meat and cellular-based dairy products as novel foods, um, whereas overseas in different places they've already recognised that actually the food is exactly the same. This is a piece of cheese. Um, this is a glass of milk. It's just the process of getting there that's novel, um, not the actual end product. Whereas by having it as the end product as no novel, it means they have to do an enormous amount of research to prove that it's healthy um, and able for, for humans to be able to eat. Um, so it's enormously problematic and it's going to become a big problem for us going forward. Um, and the other obvious one is the labelling laws as well. And this is something that's being really, really heavily pushed by industry. Um, there's no evidence that people are getting confused in the supermarket um, and are accidentally buying macadamia milk instead of cow's milk. Um, but there's a really big push, and I suspect it's coming from a position to create consumer confusion um, because the way that the labels work, it tells you how to replace and where to replace it. So if you have a bowl of cereal, you don't want to put cow's milk on it anymore, you might put soya milk on it. But you're not going to want to put soya juice on your cereal because no one wants to put juice on their cereal. Um, so it's designed to create confusion and to slow down this fast-moving transition that we're already seeing within the consumer market. Um, so there's a lot of laws that we need to focus on around to help support those startups as well. Yeah, and I mean, I tend to think that there's still just a lot of unfilled niches within our ecosystem, and there's just a lot of capacity building that we still need to do. And for example, I can see uh, Bitter, Jed in the audience. I almost feel like you guys should be up on this panel instead of me, but... The Alliance for Animals in Australia only just launched this year, and I think um, for a lot of other countries where we're not even at that point, we don't have this kind of unified body, um, or we hardly even have groups working on this, or even within the US, there's a whole lot of large groups who've only kind of recently added this to their overall programmatic portfolio. And in addition to that, there's a whole lot of research we need to do to scope out and uh, decide what policy to go for, what to lobby for. Further, we need to have many more elective officials with aligned interests. And yeah, given that we're still at this like relatively early stage but, and there's still so much more we need to do, I, just, I really do think this will be an area where we just get a lot of growth in this coming decade. And uh, yeah, maybe in terms of the coming decade, I think it could be good to outline, you know, something of like a game plan for the general approach within this area. So one thing is I think we should definitely maintain focus on wherever we can have the most impact. And it is a global movement. And there are some countries, particularly within Asia, Middle East, Africa, where we just have to scale up much more, really establish ourselves there. In addition to that, I think there's um, certain blocks that might be more tractable than other blocks. So for example, I think that the... The US is now proving like relatively hard to make progress in. In comparison, something like the European Union feels much easier and potentially we can that can be the, the world leading block there. And there might be ways that we can approach this where if we're able to pass something within that block, can then leverage those laws into other trading blocks. So for example, passing something on cage-free chickens within that block might then mean that other countries, in order for them to trade with the European Union, they would need to have catering chickens, and then through this we can kind of uh, globalise this law eventually. Um, I think another one could be government investment in our proteins, and we could really scale that up. But, yeah, within the policy stuff, I think it'll usually be some form of incrementalism will be the way to go, at least for now. I think in future we could push for much bigger changes, but... Right now, I think we're more in this process of um, pushing things a bit from the fringe, a bit more into the mainstream. We need to be beware of all the risks and challenges, and some of them we've talked about today. And then it'll be a matter of uh, really scaling and filling out the ecosystem and 
just knowing that it's going to be a really significant part of the portfolio. Definitely. And, and I just want to say as well that, um, as Kieran said, the Alliance for Animals is, is, is very new. But um, one thing I got really shocked about when I first got elected was that every single issue that came up into Parliament, there was someone there in the halls to lobby. Um, it's called lobbying because they stand in the lobby and wait for you to be there and then they come and talk to you. Um, but then they're often at the door. And it doesn't matter what issue it was. When we're talking about abortion law reform, they're there. When we're talking about nurses, they're there. When we're talking about, you know, a train line moving, there's somebody there. And then we would have an animal issue and there was dead silence. There's no one in the hallways. Um, and I would talk to some animal groups and they'd be like, oh, well, that's all right, you're there. And I'm like, no, no, I can't do the lobbying for my own stuff. <laughs> I need someone external. Like, well, the animals need someone external to come in and actually lobby on their behalf. And it doesn't even matter if we're not saying the exact same thing. Um, it just means that someone needs to be in there um, representing the animals. And so it's fantastic that we finally have um, someone that's able to actually do that in New South Wales because it was just tumbleweeds going down the hallway every time there was an animal issue. Um, and I also want to touch just on something that Kieran said about, you know, this whole global context. Um, and something that I'm really worried about, I actually saw an email um, a while back that I, I probably wasn't, well, I definitely wasn't supposed to see it, but um, it was, it was um, a communication between some people very high up in the broiler meat industry and they were discussing the movement in the Western world away from consuming animal products um, and also, you know, moving away from intensive ag agribusiness and they were talking about how to set up new markets in developing countries and majority countries. Um, so how can they find a new market? And one of the things they actually said was we cannot have another Fonterra issue. Um, and for um, anybody that doesn't know what that reference means, um, there was the whole issue with um, Nestle, um, you know, trying to sell baby formula basically um, to people in developing countries and, and encouraging them to use that um, instead of breast milk and, and that became a, a huge problem. So that's what they were referring to. But it is worrying because if we don't think about everything from a global context, the worst thing that could happen is we're trying to stop, you know, these animal agribusiness industries from causing this immense amount of suffering and the environmental problems and they pick up and they move to another country and expand there instead. Um, we haven't actually achieved anything um, if we're focusing just on that really local scale. So that's really important to, to think of everything from a global scale and how do we um, tackle this from a global scale and being aware of the tactics of these industries and what their plan is going forward. Um, and the last thing I want to talk about in regards to longevity is, is really about our own burnout and making sure that we're in it for the long haul. Um, I've been in this movement now for um, about, I think I worked out about 22 years or something like that. Um, and I could probably count on one hand how many people are still in that this movement from when I first started. Um, and that's really worrying. And people come in for maybe two or three years and then they often disappear. Um, and it's because it's really hard to get the wins that we need in animal protection um, because there's it, it, just, it just takes a lot longer to get to where we need to be. Um, I do feel like we're starting to shift that. I, I, I think that that is starting to find a bit more momentum than we have in the past. Um, but we need to make sure we look after ourselves because this is a long-haul battle um, and we want to keep as many advocates for animals that are active in this space as possible. Um, for me, uh, somebody actually asked me last night, I went to um, dinner with the AJP group and they said, you know, how do you deal with it? What, what do you actually do? And because my background is in psychology, I said, oh, I just use a bit of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so everything is about what we, what we think and how we think about how we respond to those things. Um, I think, is, I'm not sure if Sarah is here, but I know I was talking to Sarah yesterday. There she is. <laughs> Sorry to pull you out there, but Sarah was talking about the comments that she, she got on a white paper that she wrote on, on a social media account. And I said, oh, but you've got to remember if these people are attacking you, the thought that you think is, wow, they must really think that I'm being effective. <laughs> I must be doing a really good job. So it's about stopping and thinking about our thoughts. And if you do feel like you're feeling close to burnout, then I would recommend looking into cognitive behavioural therapy techniques um, because we really need to look after ourselves to make sure that we're able to continue to advocate for animals going forward. 
Yeah, a big plus one to that. So I think there's still a lot of stigma around discussing burnout, mental health issues, and it's something that's like, that's a real big factor within the movement. And I've dealt with some of that myself. And I think it's just, you know, we all have to take care of ourselves. We do have to take time off. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And, you know, I think it's just worth bearing in mind. And like, if you can pace yourself such that you're at it, for the longer term, that's how you can get into um, positions of you know, significant influence. It's how you can influence a lot of money. In contrast, if you go in it as hard as you can for what, you know, 18 months, three years, something like that, and then move on to something else, I think you're just not going to have as much impact as if you go at it for, again, 10 years, something like this. Um, so I think that's maybe most of what we wanted to cover. If it works for everyone, it might be best if we were to transition to the Q&A at this point. And we can start, I believe there might be some questions that have come in over swap card. Uh, and if not, we could potentially take some questions from the audience. Also, thanks everyone for coming out today, listening, being here, being at the conference. It's Great to see so many new faces, and uh, yeah, I think it's maybe something we didn't touch on today, but worth mentioning, is I think there's just a really positive trajectory right now, and perhaps now more so than any other point, we are seeing this, there's an influx of funding, there's an influx of new talent, there's an influx of new ideas, and it's only, you know, five years ago, there wasn't really an alt-protein movement. 10 years ago, there wasn't really like a professionalized farm animal welfare movement. And these past five to 10 years, we've seen some just absolutely monumental changes. And if we can maintain the current level of progress years into the future, I think we're on track for some really big things down the road. Um, yeah, brilliant. Um, I think this one is towards Kieran. Um, so in your talk, you mentioned that certain areas might be more sort of amenable to policy change. Um, do you think that growing countries with fewer animal welfare laws, like China, for example, are more tractable targets for policy change, or is it more effective to focus on like developed countries? So I think it'll vary just depending on the specifics of the country. I think, to be honest, China is a bit of a black box at this point, and I'm, uh, it feels hard to get a good sense of what's going on there. There are some like encouraging statements from certain officials, but I think, honestly, it's just like really hard to know about. And then uh, there might be other developing countries that are more on board. So, for example, Mexico is a really interesting one, and there's this group called Animal Equality that has been doing some strong work in the legislature there, and they've passed some really, uh, really promising laws in certain states, some of the like, strongest laws that we've seen. And then, again, within high-income countries, there's just like so much variation. If you look at something like the US versus something like Australia, very different ballgame. If you look at Australia versus New Zealand, again, very different ballgame. If you look at Australia and New Zealand versus Europe, again, it looks pretty different. But I think what we want to do is probably, probably focus on wherever is going to be most tractable. And I think that it'll probably be certain European countries and then through that able to kind of leverage things to the European Union level. At the same time, we don't really want to have uh, any kind of countries that are really like absolute holdouts. There's certain Asian countries that are, you know, basically on track to potentially become like the global superpower and so forth, where we do just have to do a lot, 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 lot more work there. China's one of them. I'm less sure China's going to be the most um, tractable place, but there might be other countries. So, for example, India has just a long cultural heritage and there's religious reasons, etc., for them to be potentially like more sympathetic to certain issues there than other parts in Asia. So I think it's just a, you know, the world, there's a lot of variation within the world, uh, within all these categories, whether it's high income, developing, or if it's, you know, places that lean conservative or places that lean uh, more to the left. I think right now it's just every category, there's a lot of variation. 
And our job as effective venom advocates is going to be trying to find the kind of the highest performance. And I don't think the categories themselves that we have right now are like that useful in identifying for places where there's going to be outstanding opportunities. These outstanding opportunities will more arise just in like various different contexts. It'll depend on like what talent we have in a given moment and all that sort of thing. Less so than it makes sense to be like, okay, you know, high income countries is the way to go, or okay, you know, these developing countries are the way to go. It's going to be this like mix and match of really us, wherever we see an outstanding opportunity, we ought to act on it. Thank you very much. Um, does anybody else have questions? Please put a hand up if so. Hi, given the um, classification as proteins as uh, novel products in Australia, how optimistic or pessimistic are you for that development in Oz? Um, I think that the difficulty now is that startups just aren't being supported. Um, and I think it's going to be hugely problematic. I, I actually feel like it's not that it's being necessarily blocked at this stage, but that nobody's really looking into it. I do think that there is a little bit more hope now that we've had a change in federal government um, and we also have a, a really different makeup within that federal government. Um, you know, we used to have, um, you know, a, a, there would be a lot of influence from the National Party, which is obviously supportive and, and promotes the animal agribusiness industry. Um, but now with, with a Labor Party and with a really strong um, green representation and a really strong independent representation, um, there's a little bit more hope that something like that could potentially change. Um, and I think that that's something that we probably need to focus on and we need to get some of these startups actually um, lobbying for that change as well through that federal level um, because, um, you know, it is about business and it is about, um, you know, these these... Uh, groups, these startups basically being in Australia versus being overseas where they're allowed to do the work over there. Um, and look, I think that um, you know, somebody mentioned to me yesterday, you know, Australia is always so far behind everywhere else. Um, the fact that other countries have actually made sure that their laws are supporting these initiatives means that, you know, potentially we have hope to, to support them at some point. And certainly if that becomes the norm, it will force Australia to do so. Um, but it is frustrating that obviously um, there is this massive financial potential that Australia is kind of turning a blind eye to at the moment. Okay, thank you. Hey, um, I'm wondering if I work in the environment space and I know that the federal government at least like has an independent review of the Act every five years. Is that something that is happening in, you know, animal cruelty as well? Is there a regular independent review or is that something we could advocate for similar to like having a commissioner? Or... Yeah, it's not something that, that is happening. Um, and, yeah, so the, the Act in New South Wales was written in 1979 um, and it hasn't been properly reviewed since it was written. Um, there is actually... So the Labor Party is um, calling for there to be a part of the Act that talks about a review every five years. Um, so that's something that we are supportive of and I think that that would have the numbers in the upper house. Um, and I don't think it's something that the government would push that heavily against. So um, it's a really good idea and it is something that has actually been flagged um, within our parliament. Um, we go to an election in March and I assume that the review of that act won't complete then. Um, so we might have a change of government in New South Wales as well. Um, so it will depend again on the numbers when that comes through. But I don't think that having an actual review process in the Act um, has been controversial. I think that's something that has had support. So I think that is something that, that we will get through. And I think there is precedent for that type of review. So again, for example, in the European Union, I think they do that once every five or ten years. The next one is happening in 2027. And something of a strategic priority right now is trying to have that mandate uh, catering hens and then also I think there's an outside chance to potentially do something on farm fish welfare, maybe even something on chick culling. And yeah, so again, I, I kind of do feel like we need to have this international focus and that often within other places we might see them be more of a leader on these issues. Not to say that Australia's gonna lag behind crazily, but I think it is, uh, it might just be a bit harder to do some of the things we wanna do here, but we. You know, we still need to make sure that it does happen here as well. 
You talked a little bit about uh, the change in federal government and the, the Greens push and the independence with uh, more of a, a mandate almost to uh, push on climate issues. Do you think that's going to help us get some wins in the next uh, parliament uh, for uh, where there is intersection like uh, alternative proteins uh, that would be really good for the climate? Yeah, I absolutely think so. I think that... Um, I, and I think it's also been a really strong wake-up call for people who have, you know, rejected environmental issues. But I think as as well that um, it, it's it's something that a lot of people are talking about. You know, even the, in the new state elections that are coming up, we've got one in Victoria in November, and we've got um, March for New South Wales. That you know, where a Liberal national government won't act on certain things for animal protection as well, um, that again they could lose their seats to independents um, who are sort of more similar to being left-leaning Liberals. Um, and, yeah, I absolutely do think that um, Labor will wake up to that as well, hopefully, on that federal level and see that, the, like, they need to act on that. I think that they did have some um, policies that were quite promising on that environmental level, um, but I think it's really, really... And I think also the increase in green seats and the increase in the green vote sends a really strong message to both parties um, that people are voting for the environment. Um, and we just need to expand that to include animals as well. Um, but I think you're right as well about... Um, talking about the environment for those alternative proteins and supporting these businesses from an environmental perspective, I think that's really strong. Um, and given that we have a makeup of a federal parliament that already is very strong on environmental issues, it's a really good avenue and a way to actually push for support for some of these startups and the entrepreneur groups. Do you know if alternative proteins is on the policy agenda for greens and teals at the moment or going into the election? Not that I have heard of, no. Um, I think that we probably need to put it on there. <laughs> um, I, I mean, it may already be on some of their radars, um, but not that I'm personally aware of. So someone's asked, France has recently banned the use of sausage in alt-pro pro products. Is there a risk of this happening in Australia? How can we prevent this? I believe the question was whether France had, use, had recently banned the use of the term sausage in the plant-based products. So, for example, you can't refer to a, you know, a plant-based sausage. That wouldn't be a thing. Um, my sense is that France is kind of particularly bad. They have a particularly strong lobby there. That's not to say that there's no risk of it happening within Australia. I think we're not quite at that point. And then instead, that's more a reflection of um, certain things that are happening in, within France. So I never, I think a few years ago there was also something that came out of France for the uh, plant-based patties had to re be referred to as discs. You, you weren't allowed to call them as patties either. And then that was eventually overturned. And I, I think you'll probably see something similar happen with the sausage ring. Um, again, not to say that there's zero risk within Australia, but I, I don't think we're quite that bad. We've got, like, yeah, probably time for one more question. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Um, I just wanted to ask if it was at all possible to amend the um, census or from the policy side of things, could we add a question in there to ask people how much uh, you know, meat or animal products they, they'd consume? And that would be a good way to sort of measure our progress in the movement. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea. Um, it's something... I'm, I'm not sure what the process is for something like that. It certainly wouldn't be something I could probably do, unfortunately, as a New South Wales state MP. Um, I think that there was some sort of... I mean, there is a little bit of data in regards to um, the number of vegans and vegetarians um, and, the, and the rate of change for that. Um, and I think that that's really useful. Um, and I think that there is some data in regards to um, how much meat is being consumed and um, our understanding is that it's either somewhat stable or somewhat sort of still increasing, which is um, even though we're seeing a slight increase in people identifying as vegetarian and vegan, we're also seeing a slight increase in the amount of animals that people are eating. 
um, at the same time. So, um, and I think that's where that real promise for cellular-based agriculture comes in because it really is just switching out the product and taking the actual animal out of it um, and taking them out of the equation. And I think that's why it's really, really promising because I don't think we're seeing the changing in the consumption of animal products that we would like to see because there's still such heavy advertising and encouraging people. And, and if you just look at the trajectory of, of, say, you know, red meat consumption and chicken consumption particularly, um, you know, from, you know, the 1950s to now and to sort of see how much it's increased um, where people were eating small amounts and now eating animals, you know, every single day, um, it's really quite, quite enormous. Um, so it, it is a big problem, but... Um, um, I mean, I can look into the census stuff, but it's not something I've, I've personally considered. Yeah, I think that could be really interesting to add to the census. I would love to get a sense of how that's changed over time. And I think one thing that's worth paying attention to is that um, often there will be media coverage of you know some survey and showing 12% of people are vegan or vegetarian. I think it's worth taking a lot of those reports with some salt. They're often, you know, not the best methodologies, not representative, all that sort of thing. That aside, I think we probably are seeing some sort of long-term increase in veg rates. I think it can be hard to detect, and that there's, you know, there's various issues with like self-reported diet measures, also people who self-identify as veg. I think you can have. Uh, I believe the the statistic is maybe like. The majority of people who do self-report as veg, if you ask them, have they consumed meat in the past 48 hours, you often get a majority of them saying, yes, they have. So uh, it's kind of unclear there. But there's one survey, and it's from the US, I believe it's from University of Oklahoma, it's called the Food Survey. And they had done this uh, the same survey over a number of years and relatively high quality. And through that, it did seem like we were detecting some significant increase in veg rates. I believe it went from a few percent, maybe up to like 6% or something like that. Um, and it's definitely, you know, that will be one of the milestones that it's worth paying attention to is the veg rates. But probably the thing that we really want to pay attention to is just like the number of animals farmed and like per capita meat consumption. And, and as Emma said, I think that's still probably going the wrong way at this point. We're maybe seeing like slight decreases in the overall rate of increase, but it's still not quite trending the right way. And you know, I'd really love for us to uh, see that number stabilize and potentially see that number go down in future. And I think that'll be you know a real milestone worth paying attention to. All right, thank you so much to our speakers. Um, that brings us to the end of our time for today. Um, can we please give them all a round of applause? <laughs>